Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. You and your kind providence have brought us here together. I give you praise for the singing of the saints this morning to you and to one another. What an encouragement to my soul. I pray that as we sing your word and read your word and now preach and hear your word, your word would have its full effect on our hearts. Not just that we might know more things, that we might know you and love you and cherish you and obey you. Would you do this, Father, by the preaching of your word, which is powerless without your word itself being preached in spirit and heard with full conviction? We pray that it might be so in our hearts. For your glory and our joy, in Christ's name, amen. How can a world that hates God come to be at peace with God? How can a world that hates God come to be at peace with God? Some of the sermons that I've preached over the years are more organized than others. I just want to tell you up front, the organization of this entire sermon is just to answer that question. How can the world that hates God come to be at peace with God? We'll see time, passages, spend time seeing passages that show the world hates God. And then we'll see what it will do, what God Himself will do about it. This is a question that we ought to ask because ours is a world that hates God. We do not have a problem that most people are good and some few are bad. We do not have the problem that people are mostly good, most often. They are just a little bad sometimes. No, our problem is that with no intervention, all of us are all bad. That is part of what we call the doctrine of depravity. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are by nature children of wrath. It is not just a few verses in the Bible that say this. It is not as though if you want to believe this and think this, you have to go to the concordance in your Bibles and look hard to find passages that say this about mankind. That's not the case. The harder decision for me as a pastor to talk about this is which one of the verses from every book of the Bible might we leave out today for time's sake. The book of Romans talking about those without the law of God and how they act. Those who do not have God's law and how they act. It says in part, Romans chapter 1, verse 28. You can look there with me if you would like to in your Bibles. Romans chapter 1. We're going to read from there. Then we will also read from Romans chapter 3. And I'll reference a few 
other verses along the way. Romans chapter 1, page 939, if you're in your house Bibles. 939. Look down to chapter 1, verse 28. Of all of those who do not have God's law and have traded God's truth for a lie, traded God for created things, denied God exists, denied His authority, here is the outcome. Here is what Paul uses to describe their lives. Romans 1, 28-32, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, not ought, what ought not to be done. And the passages before would include even those unnatural sexual same-sex relations. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they not know God's righteous decree, seeing Him in creation, they are without excuse. But those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those without the law would have seen God in creation. This is what has become of mankind. What about the Jews? Aren't they better off? Aren't the Jews better off? Aren't they in a better situation since they do have the law of God? They do have Abraham and Moses and the prophets. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 18. Just a few pages to your right. What then? Are the Jews any better off in history, in time? Because they have God and His oracles. They have the law. Are they any better off before God? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. There is the problem of mankind. Both Jews and Greeks at the end of verse 9 are under sin. As it is written, and here Paul to show that even the Jews' own songs and prophets speak of their sinfulness and their being trapped in sin as well. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no 
fear of God before their eyes. That's the people who have the law. The New Testament puts this in terms of man's great enmity with God. John chapter 3 verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things, everyone who does wicked things, what is their great issue? Hates the light. Hate the light. Does not come into the light. God's truth, His revelation, law, lest his works be exposed. We don't just hide in our wickedness. We hate the light. Romans chapter 8 verse 7, Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that is things of the world, pleasure and money and sex and fame and fortune and power, the mind that is set on the flesh and the things of this world, it's Hostile to God. It's opposed to God. Where it does not submit to God's law, indeed, that mind cannot submit to God's law. It is hostile to it. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, if you're going to be friends with the world, spiritualless world, godless world, if you know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A hater of God, hostile enemy. That is what it means to be, by nature, a child of wrath. And that is what every human being is under sin by nature of children of wrath, unless there is an intervention. The Bible is trying to help us see that when we sin against God, it is not just that we are good and we mess up a little bit. But rather, we are like terrorists to God. When Jesus came to the world, He came to a people who wanted to kill Him. When we trade God's truth for our truth, when we love the stuff on Amazon and the pleasures of the world, like Dr. Pepper, or tacos, or your hobby, or even a beautiful sunset, more than God Himself, when we don't love Him ruling and reigning over our lives, the Bible does not say, well, you're doing pretty good, just do better. The Bible says, that is enmity with God. Opposed to Him entirely. It's like we're trying to rip the whole world out of God's hands, change its orbit, and say, this is, this is ours. We need to understand that gossip and murderous hearts, selfishness, fits of rage, lying. The sins that we commit are no small thing, but they are saying to God, I hate you. 
Well, what will God do with a world that hates Him? What do you think? How does God deal with His enemies? Or you might say God is forgiving, merciful. He's nice. We take some of the things that we know about God or assume about God. If we are not careful, we will turn God into a cosmic, harmless pushover. God is not harmless. He, a, a marshmallow plush toy that comes out of the machine is harmless. Not God. God can be dangerous to encounter. God did not withhold His wrath from Pharaoh when God drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea after killing the firstborn at every Egyptian home. That's history. God did not save Uzzah's life when he touched the Ark of God's covenant. He died. Because of David's sin of greed and not trusting God and taking Bathsheba, God took David's first child. He died. Ananias and Sapphira fell down dead in the New Testament, when they lied to God. Well, he'll always be nice to Israel, right? He'll always be nice to his people. He... When Israel sinned in idolatry, the people who had God's law, when they sinned in idolatry for centuries, God disciplined them and disciplined them, and eventually, God burned Jerusalem to the ground. He destroyed the very temple that he had commissioned to build his name. He killed over half the Israelites by his providence through Babylon. This is clearly God's doing. He takes credit for this in the prophets. And those Israelites who were saved at the end of the Old Testament, God sent them into Babylon to be slaves. God will not be kind to His enemies. And He is even severe with His children. And it is not as though that we can think, well, God might be doing some of those things now, but if we get to the very end, that's our hope, if we get to the very end, God will be like a negligent parent who says, when we get home, and then when we get home, He forgets. Truly, that's what God will be like. In the end, God will just, He won't be so upset in the end. He'll get over it. He'll forget. He'll be nice. Certainly, God will never be harsh forever. Not forever. Yes, He will. Yes, He will. 
The Bible speaks very clearly that those who die as enemies of God will be thrown into the lake of fire with Satan. The book of Revelation, John has given a vision into the future of things to come. You can turn with me in your Bibles and look there. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. It's the very last book in the Bible, so... Start at the right, go left. Revelation chapter 20, the big numbers, chapters, little numbers, verses. John is given a vision of future things to come when he sees Satan finally in the end of this world as God has made it now. Satan will be defeated. Isn't this good news? Satan will be defeated and thrown in the lake of fire. No more tormenting men. No more opposing God. No more strife. No more death. But John also sees that everyone else who is an enemy of God will go with him. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation can be a difficult book to understand at times. I don't think it is too subtle what it's trying to communicate here. I thought God was nice. God is too holy and too just and trustworthy to be called nice. He's better than that. I think that this so we think about God too often. We think I can be whatever I am and whatever I want and no matter what I do, God is just going to be my friend. He'll be nice to me. You cannot take the Bible seriously if you say that. You have either had to admit I have not read the Bible or I have read the Bible and I don't think those parts belong in there. But if you're going to take the Bible seriously for what it says from beginning to end, you cannot even take forgiveness and love seriously if you do not acknowledge God's relationship to those who sin against Him. God's revelation says the wages of sin is death, period. All our sin, our murderous hearts, our lying tongues, our self-deception, all deserving just wrath from God. Has not God said from the very beginning, we often read over this as if it's a children's story time, just kind of describing the, 
the beginning of the world, but the garden, the very beginning of the Bible, begins with one of the harshest things God has ever said. If you disobey, you will die. That's how the Bible begins. If you disobey me, you will die. And the whole existence of mankind and our relationship with God is tied up in that condition. That's how it began. That's why the world is the way that it is. We have started hating God from the beginning. And so we deserve to die. Those who are self-seeking. Romans 2.8 And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be fury and wrath. We're tempted to say God sounds like He's being a little hypersensitive about sin. To which God would reply in one sentence in one part of the Bible, No, you are being stupid. Jeremiah 4.22 That's stupid. Well, what is God going to do? What's God going to do? God will settle everything through one thing. God will settle everything in the world through one thing. And as much as Christmas is about Christ, no more. As much as Christmas is about Christ, it is about that one thing that God will do to settle everything else. The passage that Megan read for us said that when Jesus was born, everything around His birth, the city, the virgin birth, the star, these things all took place to show that Jesus' birth is fulfilling the Old Testament passage. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What is Matthew saying there about Jesus when he was born? That Jesus, the babe in the manger, is God with us. He is God. That's who He is. What He is doing is being with us. Man, here on earth. Most narrowly, the identity is the point. He is God. The im in Emmanuel means with us. The L at the end is a reference to God. It's a name for God. This baby is God. Which ought to just make us pause for a minute given everything we just said about God. It's like an alien coming into our planet. We ought to be asking a very serious question about Emmanuel with us. Do you come in peace? Colossians chapter 1 is going to answer this question. 
We're going to find a thread in this passage in Colossians chapter 1 to Matthew, which Megan read for us, and that it is this, that Jesus, this child, this man, is God. Paul too is saying that. Paul is going to expound on that some more. Jesus is God. And then Paul gives the meaning of Christmas when he explains what it means for Jesus to be God. First, Paul gives the doctrine of Jesus' divinity, and then he gives the application of Jesus' divinity, which will answer the very first question that we begin with. The doctrine of His divinity, then the application of His divinity. There in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. Look at this slowly and consider what Paul is saying about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You cannot see God, you cannot see Him, but if you can see Jesus, you see God. A lot of people look at me and think that I look like my grandfather. That was one of the greatest things I loved to hear. He also had blue eyes. A lot of people heard that he was handsome, which I used to think was really good, but then you know, last week's sermon has me rethinking everything. It not just, doesn't just mean that Jesus is kind of like God. He's the perfect representation of God. He, he is the image. There's an invisible God, but He is the image of the invisible God. He, he fits. He makes the visible visible. He is the firstborn of all creation. Nothing else in creation is as iconic of God Himself, like Jesus. So in John chapter 14, Philip says to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, why don't you show us the Father? What does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen Him. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. That the Him is Jesus. So just read it again, just to be clear. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus created the tree that was cut down to build the manger that He would lay in, or the stone that was carved out of. He created the star that led the wise men to Him. That includes things that are invisible, and it includes, it says, things that are invisible, things we don't even see. Every throne, every ruler, every dominion created, not built, not founded, created. Hebrews says the angels even called Jesus Lord. When he was being crucified, he could have called down 10,000 angels who would have swooped in and saved his life. And Jesus had the gall to tell a ruler of Rome, my father made you king. All thrones and dominions and authorities, including everything you cannot see, made by him, for him. Jesus then is a man who was born in time and yet is not bound by time. He has entered into creation, and yet He created that creation both at the same time. Jesus was born, yet He was not created as a part of creation. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1 says it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. Does a great mystery exist in Christ? Well, 
Two things are true. Jesus is the creator with God, and yet he is coming into the existence he created as a man. He did not appear in creation as a tree or as a son or an animal to be worshipped like that. He was born of a woman, and Jesus is God with us. Look what he says in verse 17. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. Remember when Jesus was talking with the Jews in John chapter 8. He said of himself, Before Abraham was, I am. A phrase that means to his audience, I am God. I am older than Abraham. I'm older than close to 2,000 years old. It's a nonsensical statement or it's a claim to divinity. Well, they killed Jesus because they knew it was a claim to divinity. Saying that you are before all things means you are crazy or you are God. And such, as such, Jesus is the head of the church. The entire global spiritual people of God are all under His authority. It says next, He is the beginning. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. What does that mean? What does His resurrection mean in this passage? See that in verse 18. That, look what He says, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. Meaning Jesus is always first. When this world was created, He was first. When God began the work of recreating this world into a new creation, Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the first thing. First, He's always first. He is preeminent at everything that God is doing. God never begins something that doesn't begin with Jesus. God is never doing something that Jesus doesn't begin with Him. He, in everything, is preeminent with God. Look at verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is Paul's tether to the Christmas statement from that passage at the birth of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The fullness of God was pleased to dwell with Him. There was nothing about God which you cannot say about Jesus. In His character, in His nature, in His power. This is God in all His fullness. There is no inferiority or conflict of persons or essence between God the Father and God the Son. It is pleasing. It is delightful that all the fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. And so Matthew can say and record that Jesus is what said was going to happen in the prophets. That His name is Emmanuel. He is God with us, incarnate, a man. Now we've essentially said two things this morning. We've taken a long time to say just two things. One, by our sin, we are enemies of God and we deserve His wrath. And two, Jesus Christ is God. But what do we do with this? It might seem like those two things are entirely unrelated. We are enemies, Jesus Christ is God. What do those two things have to do with each other? Look at the application of the doctrine of Jesus' divinity in verse 20. And through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven. God, through Jesus, reconciles all things to Himself. Do you see how this is the application of the doctrine of Jesus' divinity? Jesus created all things, rules all things, holds all things together as God does. God is doing something about everything by this one thing. Through this child, God with us. Because Jesus is both God. He is with invisible, eternal Creator. He is divine. And yet He is man, born of a woman, incarnate, now entered into creation. He can settle every account. There is no debt of payment or lost Adam in creation that Jesus cannot reconcile. When we sinned against God, we basically built a wall around earth or a sphere, if you want to, you know, like a, I don't know what the you know, science fiction version of a wall would be around the whole world. Our, our sin basically telling God, you need to get out of here. We hate you. There's a rupture between man and creation and God. And not only between God and man, but between creation and man and God itself. The existence that we have, this air, these clouds, these trees, this world and volcanoes and the ocean. This whole planet is cursed. Cursed. We think Venus is inhabitable because it has 900 degrees temperatures or Neptune with its negative 300 degree temperatures God became a man and he went to the only planet that has people created in his image and those people hate him and the planet is cursed because of it And we just keep sinning and sinning and sinning and hating and rebelling against God. Why does God become a man in that world? Through Jesus, who is now both God and man, both sides of the enmity. He has become a man, yet He is God. And of course, He is a man, but without sin. And He is a man who does not hate God. Who does not disobey God. Who does not rebel against God. Who does not lie. Who does not cheat. Who does not steal. Who does not lust. He does not murder. He is not selfish. Jesus is a man now positioned to reconcile to God everything. What was ripped apart and lost because of sin, only God with us can recuperate. Look at the verse 20. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, because the God-man can reconcile both earth and heaven. Being God, being man, Jesus' reconciliation efforts span earth and heaven. Both, all of it, everything. Being God and man, He can reconcile all that sin has ripped apart. 
And how did he do that? How can a world that hates God be at peace with God? The end of verse 20. Making peace by the blood of his cross. God came to be with us to make peace. There is no way that we can make peace with God. Once we sinned against God, we are in a debt that we cannot pay. The only just payment, the wages of sin, is death. And once we have died, we had committed treason to the highest degree. We used our lives and we used this planet for sin. And as enemies, we deserve to die. We can't make peace with God. Don't you see it? We can't make peace with God. It's only God who can come make peace with us. And Jesus on the cross is God's terms of peace. If anyone wants to get out of the enmity of God and live forever in the new world in which Jesus was resurrected into, that future world where there is no enmity with God, where our sins are washed away and we are forgiven, there is only one term of peace by which we can be at peace with God. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. God with us. His blood shed on the cross for your sins. Because the wages of sin is death. And that's what Jesus did. Only when we look to Jesus in faith and trust that by Jesus your sins against God are forgiven, meaning you acknowledge God, I was living as an enemy. Only then can you be adopted as a child of God. Our sin means that we are at enmity with God. Jesus, God with us, is God's terms of peace. See, all that theology about Jesus being God means that He Himself is the thing, the one, by which God can reconcile everything heaven and earth. God with us is the only means of peace between a sin-ruptured world. All I can do with you today is plead with you. Plead with you to consider what Jesus means. God with us it is a plea. It is a call. He has come. And He came to die on the cross. We sing songs that sound so strange. And we sing songs like, My God has died for me. Trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And my favorite Christmas film... <coughs> is Joya Noel. I probably haven't gone two or three years in a row without referencing this in December, I'm guessing. It's a true story. 
It's the story of what, was, what has become known as the Christmas truce between German, French, and British soldiers. One of the soldiers there that day, Henry Williamson, a 19-year-old private in the London Rifle Brigade, wrote his mother on Boxing Day, the day after the famous Christmas truce between Germans, French, and the British. He wrote, Dear Mother, I am writing... This is so fascinating. I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a coke fire. Opposite me, a dugout, but wet with straw in it. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench, but frozen everywhere else. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say. But wait. In the pipe is German tobacco. Ha-ha, you say, from a prisoner, or found in a captured trench. Oh, dear, no, from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and the Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches and exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all Christmas Day, and Mom, today, as I write. Marvelous, isn't it? Well, friends, that is a wonderful picture of the peace that God is offering us. Christmas truce, as it were. The one term of peace that God gives us is non-negotiable. And it is one-sided. Here are God's terms of peace. Surrender. Confess. Repent. I have come to die for you. And be at peace. Forever. And we cannot simply make peace by saying to God, I forgive you. God has done nothing wrong. We are not two evil sides against one another. We are enemies of God and entirely He is holy and righteous. The only way to make peace with God is through faith in the cross for your sins, His own terms of peace. I wonder if you would do that today. And if not, why not? Might you consider that deep down it is not that you have so many questions. But you don't want to come into the light because your wicked, your wicked deeds make you hate the light. Well, the film shares great hope, but also shares a great tragedy. In actual history, there are varied responses to the truce. Not everyone back home was so excited about it. The film ends with a French lieutenant encountering his father in the trenches who was also military personnel. His father had heard about the truce, come to approach his son who was embarrassed seeing his son as a weakling, seeing his son as pathetic, as a traitor even. But as the French lieutenant and his father talk and as his father learns in that conversation that he is a grandfather, the French 
Father ends up coming to terms and understands the peace and leaves telling his son, I just hope that we survive, that we might see this young child together. But the next scene, the final scene of the movie, ends up in a train car. It is dark, no windows, just a crack of light through the sliding door. It is filled with German soldiers who are being shipped like cargo, not even men. The door is thrown open, and every German soldier rises to their feet immediately. A superior commander enters in and fumingly expresses his displeasure with their fraternity with the enemy. He sees a soldier with a harmonica and throwing the harmonica on the ground several times. He then stomps on it with the heel of his boot. And the movie ends not with the joy that everyone was saved and everyone was happy and everyone came across to the middle and there was a great truce. The movie ends with the reality of this world and that war watching the train car carrying German soldiers to their certain death. Germany having been unwilling to accept terms of peace. What a tragedy to have seen such beautiful and wonderful terms of peace expressed by all only to be brought home to be killed instead. They actually didn't want the peace. Let me encourage you not to do that to God. The ending of the film is a picture of two mindsets. Two options for you. Those who accept God's terms of peace in Christ. God with us. Sent to die to bear our sins on Himself on the cross. And those who do not accept the terms of peace. Those who were once enemies, but now have been transformed to the kingdom of darkness. Those who have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of beloved Son. There, there are those who have taken the terms of peace and said, yes, I want to be at peace with God. And there are those who refuse to come to the cross. Those who refuse to be at peace with God and remain hostile. What a tragedy for you to come to a place where you hear God's terms of peace, but leave on a train to the fires of hell. Don't do that. Confess your sin today. Accept Jesus' blood as terms of peace. Lay down your enmity. God has saved us. Colossians 1.21 says that we might be presented as holy and blameless before God. All of our enmity washed away. What does that look like to say I want to be transferred from enmity to being at peace with God? Instead of going separate ways with God today, like the French and the Germans, take steps to join the people of God. Come talk to me about being baptized. Come talk to Cal, the guy in the red shirt with no hair from earlier. Come talk to him when the service is over. What do I do next? How do I become part of the people of God? Come talk about how to live a reconciled life now. How to do that with others together. 
here, here's the situation. What we do as a church should never be more or less than this. Never. We are those who say and affirm in one another, you used to be an enemy, me too. You gave in and you confessed and you believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiving your sin, me too. That's why we're together here. And so we pray and we read God's commands and we listen to God's words preached and we just keep trying to help each other get the remaining enmity out of our hearts and our minds and the corners of our flesh. That's what a church is. That's what it means to be a part of a church. That's why if you are trusting the blood of Jesus Christ, you should be baptized and you should join a church. Because here's what a church is. Gathered people, reconciled, and recovering enemies of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your kindness to us in Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. Pray for us all who are here that we might be reminded if we need reminding of the gospel. That we would remember it and treasure it and love it. And instead of hating you, we would just increasingly, help us increasingly this week, hate sin. For any who have come, who have heard things about you, or wondered about you, or not known you, oh, Father, we pray that we might all leave here today knowing you and being at peace with you. Help us enjoy peace with you this week. Help us be happy. Help us be thankful by reminding us what the world is like and why Jesus came to be God with us, what it means for Him to have died on the cross. Let that be our joy, our motivation for service. Let it be our life, our mind, our heart, for Your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.